Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is over Zechariah chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 entitled Anti-Semitism. Zechariah chapter 2. Last week we were in chapter 1 trying to hit the highlights of the Old Testament. Some places like Zechariah it's kind of hard to do. The whole thing is a highlight. Zechariah has goes to bed one night and has eight different visions. It's one of the worst nights of his life, I would suggest to you. Um, because they're visions that are that are um, not so tough to interpret, but they're, they're disturbing, and yet at the same time they're very encouraging. The whole book of Zechariah is intended to be an encouragement. Very much an impractical book in that way. Zechariah and Haggai are, are buddies. They're team preachers. They exist at the same time. They're preaching the same group of people on behalf of the same God under the same set of circumstances, and yet one preaches a very practical message. Haggai, get your hammer and saw, let's get busy, and do, let's see if God won't bless us tomorrow because of the stuff we do today. That's, that's the message of Haggai. Zechariah is, um, like I said, he had a really bad night and eight different visions here and things that we're uh, going through. And we looked at the first vision last time. We're going to be in the second one here in chapter 2. Last time we began to deal with the subjects, of the subjects I should say, of Zechariah's visions. They're always the same all the way through. The subjects are two, namely the people of God and the city of God. People of God, the city of God. People of God, the city of God. In particular, first of all, Jerusalem, the city of God, Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14, for the Lord God has chosen Zion. It's not some imaginary place. It's an actual hill in the middle of the Middle East, speaking of the city of Jerusalem. He has desired it for his habitation. Isn't God everywhere? Yup, but he's especially there. It doesn't just say it here. It says it all over the place in the Bible. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. How long? forever. So, um, special to note that. So, not only does he have a town, he has a people, uh, among other places. Deuteronomy 14, 2, for you are a holy people, speaking of the Jews, to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, doesn't God, isn't God everybody's God? Yes. But he's especially the Jews. So, God is everywhere, but he's especially in Jerusalem. God, everybody belongs to God, if you will, but especially the Jews do. He's called them out for a specific purpose. And we saw also last time that there won't be world peace until there's peace in God's hometown. Part of the last vision of uh, Zechariah was the fact that there was peace everywhere except for Jerusalem and God's people. So ask yourself the question, if there's not, if there's not peace in God's hometown... And there's not peace of God, among God's home people. Is there actually peace? No, it's a false peace. It's a, it's a mirage. It's a, it's a lie. And until there's peace in that town, that's why you're encouraged to pray the way you are here in Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why? It's a selfish prayer. May they prosper who love you. And apparently the opposite is true if you don't. May peace be within your walls. Here's the prayer you're to pray. Prosperity within your palaces for the sake of my brothers and my friends. I will now say, may peace. And because I care about those I love, I'm praying for the peace in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So unless there's peace there, there can't be peace here. Unless there's peace there, there can't be really peace in our families, in our lives, in our culture. There can't be peace anywhere. And so, again, the, 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 the mantra of the world that's being pursued today is that Israel, and in particular Jerusalem, is the obstacle to peace. What does the Bible say? The exact opposite. Are we surprised? I hope you're not. I don't know if you think the world is on the line with God and 
Again, the Bible demonstrates over and over again that it's not, and the circumstances of the world today uh, demonstrate that it's not. So one overlying message, again, of Zechariah is that, that that city and the people of that city are the key to it all. And again, it says it over and over, not just, script, not just Zechariah and other places. So we're ready to take a look at the next vision. And that's where we're going to be here in chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. This is tough stuff. I don't know if any of you ever plan to be a preacher. Stay out of Zechariah. Just stay. Because it's tough. I mean, it's tough to make this practical stuff to application. And the visions here are just really, really rough. Like I said, it's on, a, it's on par with, it, with the Daniel, second half of Daniel, the book of Revelation. It's got that kind of flavor to it, to be sure. Then I lifted up my eyes. So you're going to hear him say this several times in this book. I lifted up my eyes, lifted up my eyes. So it's like he's seeing these visions one after another, like rapid fire. And yet in the middle, in the middle of it, he's kind of... I don't know if he's passing out. I don't know what he's doing. I think I would have been. But I lifted up my eyes, so he, apparently his eyes went down. And look and behold, there was a man with a measuring line. And this man is an angel. And I will just say this as an aside. And I know I say this a lot. If you're a church member, you're sick of me saying this. But every time an angel shows up in the Scripture, he's always pictured as a man and never with wings. So just deal with it. And if that's your vision, that not your understanding of an angel, then um, keep reading. Let's just say that. Where are you going? So this one angel says to the other angel, the one standing by him, Zechariah, who's explaining, interpreting all these visions for him, is saying to the guy who's got the measuring tape, where are you headed? And he answers, he says to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, another angel. So they're going out together in this process to measure the temple, measure the city. And they said to him, run and speak to that young man. What young man is he talking about? He's talking about Zachariah. Zachariah is the young man. So we kind of get an age, uh, get him aged here a little bit for us. Go back and tell Zachariah effectively, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. Unheard of in that day. Primary defense was a wall. You built a city, you didn't have a city until you had a wall. It was indefensible. So, but to say that it's not going to have a wall, wow, that'd be something new for them. Jerusalem will be had without walls because of the multitude of men and of cattle within. We're not going to read it, but later on in the chapter it says people from all over are going to be moving there. I'm, I'm going to be there, by the way. I've already been there and picked out a spot, so you're welcome to live with my wife and I when we get there. Someday in God's grace, right? So uh, just this multitude of people, it says, verse 5, For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Why? Because that's his city, and that's his people. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, speaking to his people. Declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Ho Zion, escape. You are living in the daughter of Zion. Ba daughter of Babylon, excuse me. For thus says the Lord of hosts, boy, this is um, a weighty phrase. After glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, speaking of the Jews. For he who touches you, the Jews, touches the apple of his eye, the pupil of his eye. You ever been poked in the eye? I wouldn't suggest you poke the Jews because you're going to have yourself a problem. You really are. So let's, let's take this apart. And more the more time we get, again, one more time, this imagery of God's city and God's special people, and it's going to be repeated eight different times here in the book of Zechariah in these different visions. Uh, why are the Jews special? We talked about it last time. Because God says they are, and not for any other reason. In fact, the more you look into the Jewish people, and you've got a huge um, compilation of their history, the more you look at them, the more you realize they are just about as regular as homemade soap. They're just like us. 
It's almost like God just found the people who, I don't know about you, just like me. Because as I'm reading their stories, I'm thinking, yeah, man, I've been like that. Yeah, I've been stupid like that. Yeah, God blessed me like that when I did what they did or, or didn't because I did, I did what they did, whatever the situation. They're regular flesh and blood people. They're just regular descended people from uh, particular ancestors, just the same as all of our stories. You know, it's, it's popular today for us to do uh, DNA testing. Find out where you're from, you know, your background and where your ancestors came from and where they're from Europe, from the, from the Americas, where they're from, I don't know, wherever. And uh, places like MyHeritage.com, 23, and anybody done that? Find out where you're, and I don't do it because I know it's going to trace back to just a bunch of rednecks living in South Alabama, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so, that's where we were prior to the Civil War, and we moved to Texas because there wasn't nothing left over there. So that's, I already know that. Ancestry.com, I mean, that, that's, these are popular places that are going to determine whether you're a human being or whether you were landed here by aliens or something, I guess. So you find, you find out your, your background, popular, like I said, and cool, but, but, um, but what if they not only traced your, your genes, uh, but they also unearth all the history of your family? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, you could do some of that. Ancestry.com does some of that, but not all the history. What, what, if there was a, what if it was possible, and I don't think it is, possible to unearth everything about every ancestor you've ever had? Like all their decisions and their marriages and their mistakes and their criminality and sins and... And they wrote it down in a book, and they published it and gave it to everybody. How would you like that? You know, I would, would kind of like to know, but I wouldn't want anybody else to know, and I pretty much can tell you how it's going to go. The Waddell family were a bunch of regular old sinners, and that's just the way it's going to work out. And I'd be willing to bet that mine would shake out pretty much the same way yours would, uh, because, because that's what we are. Well, even though we wouldn't prefer that to happen to ourselves, that's exactly what you have with regards to the Jews when you talk about the Bible. You have their whole family laid out here. Everything that they did, words that they said, places they went, decisions they made, obedience to God, disobedience to God, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything is recorded, or everything God intended, I should say, is recorded right here before us. And it's just laid out in front of us. Again, the Bible demonstrates as we read about these people how profoundly normal they are, albeit special. How profoundly like the rest of us they truly are. Isn't, isn't that true? People, the Jews, are just regular old sinners, right? Just like the rest of us. And what we have here in the book of Zechariah is they've gone through an episode of sinning and God judging them, just like all of us. You, tell me if your life spiritually hasn't looked like this. Look at the Jews. Guess what? That's why it's in there. So the things were written before him were written for our instruction, that by the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Because if God forgave them, guess what? There's hope for us, you see. If God, God could hold their hand through the difficult trials that they got themselves into or that was subjected to them because of other people's sin, then God can hold our hand too. So there's great encouragement in the Scriptures when we read about these stories. So they've gone through a low ebb, and God has judged them. He sent them off for 70 years, and they're back now in their hometown. Nonetheless, still God's people. This is still God's hometown. And God is encouraging them. God is instructing them. They're going to eventually rebuild the temple, and they're going to rebuild their culture and their religion. So this process that they're in. So, so the world, the Bible states to us, is the enemy of God. Do you know that? That the world, anybody outside of Christ, is an enemy of God? Well, my mom wasn't saved, but she was an enemy of God. I'm sorry, ma'am. The Bible says she was. Well, my friend, he's a good guy. He's a Mormon, but he's good. I'm not saying he's not good in your eyes. I'm just saying according to the Bible, 
He's an enemy of God. Anybody outside of Christ is an enemy of God. I'm not making this up. That's what it says in the Scriptures. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That's enemy, right? For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. Again, notice who Jesus saves, Romans 5.10. For while we were, yet, we were enemies, that's you. So we got a room full of former enemies right here. I, I hope former, that you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper here in just a bit and celebrating the fact that Jesus was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. But listen, when God saves, he's saving enemies. And that is God's desire. That is his heart. He loves enemies. And enemies, by the way, if you're enemies when you were reconciled to him, that means you weren't seeking him. He was seeking you. I mean, I would say it all the time. People say, I found Jesus. I'm like, well, Jesus wasn't lost. You were. Jesus found you. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Everyone outside of Christ is an enemy of God. So let's reason together here for just a second. So the world is an enemy of God. So it, you might imagine that being God's special people, living in God's special town, would cause some problems. Imagine that. If, I should say, if the Bible is true and there is a God, then being God's chosen people, would, and, the, and the world's an enemy of the same God that has chosen you, would make your life pretty rough. As you might expect, since these people are the people of God, God has chosen them, that they have continued to exist despite literally having the entire world against them. Our topic today is anti-Semitism because that's really where, we're, where, we're, where we are. It's really what the whole thing, the passage deals with here. And I would dare say that you've never met an Assyrian, have you? Babylonians, the descendants of these people probably exist today, but not as a culture, not as, a, not as an ethnic group anymore. Any Romans? Met any Romans? These were all major world players, controlling, dominating. Well, they don't exist anymore. What about any of the ites of the Bible? Have you met an Edomite lately? A Moabite? These were real people. We got archaeological evidence to prove that they existed. Ammonites, Hittites, Jebusites, Canaanites, all the ites are gone. But I'd be willing to bet if you've run around very long in this life, you have met an Israelite, haven't you? Well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? You've got all these people dominating the world. The Israelites were never more than about six or seven million people. And yet there's, there's more Jews living today than maybe there's ever been. What happened to the Romans? Well, they just passed away. And listen to me, the Jews have attended the funeral of a multitude of empires and peoples who have tried to get rid of them. They just go to one funeral. The most recently, the Third Reich of, of, of Nazi Germany, they attended that funeral. And by the way, there are more Jews alive today post-Nazi Germany than there were prior to Nazi Germany. Isn't that something? And they, out of the result, they went only from having this holocaust to having their own country and also being more popular than they've ever been. And almost, it, at least in the books, it looks like that was a blessing to them, even though we know holocaust, of course, how could that possibly be a blessing? These are amazing people. Why? <laughs> only because the God who chose them is amazing. They're regular sinners, just like us. They have a special status, though, because of God's choosing them and choosing their town. Their existence is unexplainable unless the God of the Bible is true and the Scriptures are correct that he has chosen them. Truly. That being the case, we should expect that since the world hates God, and of course it does, and refuses to submit to them, that there would be a profound and systematic hatred of his chosen people. And guess what? That's what we find. Profound 
and systematic. There's a little thing out there, I don't know if you've heard of it before, it's been in the news recently, called anti-Semitism. It's actually a euphemistic term because it doesn't sound all that bad. Because who's, who's a Semite, right? We don't even know. Anti-Semitism? No, I think it's better just called Jew-haters. That's what it is. Hatred of the Jews. Let's just call it what it is. Anti-Semitism just sounds like we're glazing over something. Let's call it that. Jew-hating, that's what they do. Popular pastime of humanity since there ever was a Jew, and all the more demonstrating how deeply seated our hatred of God is. The world's hatred of God. Watch the Jews. Watch their city. Talk about a barometer of what's really going on before, between men and God. Watch what happens to them. Such a barometer. Hatred is universal, is it not? Anybody here ever been hated before? Anybody here ever hated before? I won't ask that question, but I just ask, yeah. We have a tendency, don't we? It's human nature for us to fall into that kind of stuff. And hatred is, is it's spread randomly and sporadically across the peoples and cultures and languages of the world until you get to the Jews. Then it is not sporadic, and it is not random. It is consistent and systematic. You would almost think there's a mind behind all of it, organizing all of it. Guess what the Bible says? There is. There definitely is. So if the Bible is true and there is a God, and the Bible and God say that there is a devil, then guess what? You're getting a picture here of what's going on. This hatred is not, just, is not sporadic, it's not random, it's consistent, it's systematic, and studying it, well, you'll be amazed how clearly it points to the existence, again, of the truth of the Bible and the existence of God. If God exists and the Bible is true, then we would expect that the devil and all he controls, which is everything, to be diametrically opposed, in particular, to the city that God has chosen and the people that God has chosen. That's exactly what we find out. We talked last time, I gave you the statistics of the city of Jerusalem. It's been attacked 52 times, captured or recaptured 44 times, placed under siege 23 times, completely destroyed, I mean leveled, not a rock left on top of another, two different times. You excavate parts of the city, there's as many as 20 layers of destruction and rebuild, destruction and rebuild. Same is true for all the cities in Israel. They've been conquered, destroyed, they rebuilt them again, someone else marches against them and destroys them, builds them again. You go to any other city, any other place in the world, how was your hometown? We had a couple of houses burned down and we toilet papered some other people's houses, but nothing else really went on. <laughs> These people, wow! Talk about an embattled city, oh my goodness. So we talked about the stats for the city, what about the people? I want us just to reason together here for just a bit about the... the the inordinate um, display of hatred as compared to the display of, like I said, hatred is random and sporadic in different places, and everybody gets their share of it eventually. But compared to the amount of people that there are among the Jews compared to other peoples in the world, just south of here, we have a country called Mexico. It's nine miles, by the way, as the crow flies. 120 million people in Mexico. Where's, we have anti-Semitism. Where's the anti-Mexican stuff? I haven't seen it. If there is, I'm against it. I love Mexican people. people Mexican people love me. Mexican food loves me. <laughs> what's, what's to hate, right? Well, I'm sure there's, there's sporadic stuff. There's issue stuff. There's things going on with the border and border violators, and I know, I know all that, but there's no anti-Mexican. There never has been. Hopefully, there never will be. But you've got 127 million people who nobody's found a real reason to systematically hate. Well, let's go up to the other side of the border, here we are, 37, 327 million people in the U.S. There's anti-Semitism. Where's the anti-American movement? 
By the way, it's out there to a degree. By the way, some people don't like it. For the most part, though, you go anywhere. You're free to say you're American, and it's okay. The average person does not hate the average American. It's okay. There never has been an anti-American movement of any sort that I'm aware of that any history demonstrates. With 327 million, you would think the chances would be good. What about, let's go to north of the north border, 37 million Canadians. Is there an anti, everybody loves Canadians, right? 150 million Russians. How have the Russians been doing as far as the past decade? not decade, the past century here in the world. They've made a lot of friends. Well, they've done a lot of, they've killed a lot of people. They've caused a lot of havoc. They've caused a lot of issues. Is there an anti-Russian movement that you're aware of? Me either. In my mind, at least, and maybe I'm biased as American, and no doubt I am, but there would be most likely be an anti-Russian movement. I'd be against it. I'm not against the Russians, per se, and no one else apparently is, at least systematically so. But you would think there would be something like that. But there's not, and then you go to China, 1.4 billion people in China, that's a lot of people. Certainly, somehow, those 1.4 billion people have ticked off the other 6 billion of us to a place where you'd have an anti-China movement. Are you familiar with that? Doesn't exist. So then, let me ask you the question. There's only 15 million Jews. By the way, that's 4 million less than just the state of Texas. We got 19.5 million, I think, here in Texas. There's only 15 million Jews and the hatred's universal against them. Global, not sporadic, systematic, consistent against these people. And it, it, again, it doesn't make any sense unless the Bible is true and God is real and he's actually chosen these people. And according to the Bible, we hate God and likewise hate the things that he chooses. There's a huge anti-Semitic problem globally. And it's no shocker, like I said, if you believe the Bible. You believe God and what he says. It, 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 otherwise, you would think everybody would be getting an equal share. They're not. It's very focused, very pointed against these particular people, and there's not that many of them. Here's just some examples of, of current anti-Semitism, which, is, by the way, is on rapid rise. Now, 2018, 1,879 attacks against Jews and Jewish institutions in the United States. 1,879. What is this, Nazi Germany? No, it's up. Not up a lot from the previous year, but it's up. That's a lot. Here, here's some headlines, by the way, and I'm going to put them up here on the screen. There's going to be two screens full of them. And these are only headlines with regards to anti-Semitism globally from the month of February 2019. I didn't go to January because I didn't want to put up like 30 screens up here, January through, through May, because there wouldn't be enough. This is just February. French court investigates an anti-Semitic insults uh, during protests, students of Oxford College call for kosher meat ban. Anti-Semitic attacks fuel continuing rise for hate crimes. It's only 15 million people. Why are we so focused on them? Unless the Bible is true, right? Virginia Democrat who was attacked for remarks. It's amazing to me how in, in the United States we're all against this hatred and all against this stuff, and yet we, we elect these crazy people. Remarks against Israel, yet he still wins election in, in Virginia, which is, you know, has been at least a conservative state. More than 200 students vote against the approving of Jewish club and UK universities. Just, just, just February, not other months, just this year. Macron, who's the premier over in France, says anti-Semitism in his country is the worst levels, quote, since World War II. Wow, what a statement. Uh, why is it that way? Here's, here's something that may look like from something from Nazi Germany. Does that look like Nazi Germany? It's an anti-Jews poster pulled off the walls of a college 
this year in the United States. It's not Arab. It's not that, oh, it's those crazy Arabs coming over here, Muslims, and it's not. It's not. Fighting the international scourge of the Jews. Like I said, you would think we're in the 1930s in, in Nazi Germany. We're not. And it's, again, notice this is, uh, they're marching against because the problem with world peace, don't you know, is the Jews over there in the Middle East in Palestine in a city you can't even get to by a highway because there's, there's not even an airport in Jerusalem. Yet the problem is Jerusalem and Israeli occupation, their apartheid state, uh, apparently, because those six million people over there are causing the problem for the other seven billion of us. They're the issue. We're, not, we're all friends and buddies and doing everything nice for each other, and they're the ones causing the problem, right? Ama it's amazing how stupidly focused this hatred is. Like, it doesn't have a close comparison, not in any way, shape, or form. Not, not anywhere close. And, and constantly we're having to protect them here, and I'm glad that we still do. Just recently making anti-Semitic resolutions in the, in the Congress because some of the Congress people, uh, Arabs, I mean, it's amazing to me how, as I recall, in 2001, 9-11, we were, we were lost two towers and had our Pentagon nearly burned down by Muslim radicals, and yet we've elected Muslim radicals to our Congress here 20 years later. Wow! wow. And, and, and then these people who hadn't done a thing to us, we're protesting up and down the streets because, holy cow, they're tearing up our lives. I, I just, you know, it doesn't make sense unless the Bible is true, and there is a God, and there is a systematic hatred with a single mind behind it that's pushing these kind of things. Again, we're constantly having to protect these people because people are out to get them. Honestly, it's not paranoia at all. United Nations, right, created in 1947 uh, to enforce world peace, uh, quote, to oppose those who wanted to destroy or attack any group of people. That's United Nations. Decidedly anti-Semitic. Decidedly Jew-hating this organization called the UN, which, by the way, our nation's a part of. Here, here's just an example. I'm not just throwing that out there because it's my opinion. Here's what it actually, the statistics show. Up until 19, from 1947 to 1989, so a 42-year period, the UN General Assembly passed 690 resolutions. Okay? Of that 690, 429 were against Israel, the state of Israel. Around 3 million people for most of those times. So, of all the countries, like I said, you only have three million people over there, and I'm going to make more than half of my resolutions just against them. Uh, is there a bias? Ah, wow. I mean, the stats show that. In the Arab world, by the way, 366 million people in the Arab world, only 56 resolutions against the Arab world because they were all sweet over there the whole time. It's just the terrible Jews, right? The terrible Israelis, they're the ones of the problem. In the Arab world, they're all friends. They get along just fine, and they always, you know, care for people. And I'm not anti-Arab either. I'm just saying, don't we know history just a little bit different than that? Here's some just examples of how sweet they were to each other, at least some of their leaders. 1988, Saddam Hussein, remember him? He, as an, as an experiment to test his nerve gases and other things, tested it on 5,000 Kurds, men, women, children, old people, killing all of them. In Iraq, there was no UN resolution. Where, where was the UN intervention against stuff like that? Didn't happen. Didn't happen. 
And, and when he was called on the carpet by some people who, who opposed him, which I, hopefully everyone did, but like I said, not the UN, at least publicly, this is what he said. He's such a sweetheart. I reject any criticism, he says, of my use of gas against civilian populations. No one has come to me and said that they were personally bothered by these gases. Well, it's because they're dead. <laughs> Frankly, you know, I mean, you know what kind of character this guy was. Frankly, I'm sick of having these self-righteous types infringe on my personal freedom. That's how they're operating in the Arab world. Hafez Assad in Syria, and that's nothing, that's, that's 1988. Here's two, two years ago. Hafez Assad, uh, premier of Syria, um, a couple of years ago, killed 20,000, not 5,000. Uh, got them locked up in a town, besieged them, got them to get inside of buildings. They walled off all these buildings and they pumped cyanide gas downwind and killed, like I said, William, women, children, old people, young people, killed 20,000 of them in order to make a statement. The UN did make a resolution, but they did not intervene. So I'm going to sit over here behind a mahogany desk and say, you bad boys, stop it and do nothing about it. And that's the UN. As they call them in Israel. Instead of UN, they just say, mm, mm, they don't do anything. On the other hand, if you want, by the way, you won't find any UN cars, not any, I don't know about that, but many UN cars or people in Syria, guess where you'll find them? They're crawling all over Israel. About every third license plate is a UN license plate over there. They're the UN, the head of the UN in Israel, in Jerusalem, is on the same hill, interestingly enough, I guess maybe you might say coincidentally, the same hill that the Roman tribunal set up on as they watched, as they besieged Jerusalem in AD 70, and they hemmed them in and killed every last one there. 1 1.3 million Jews died in that skirmish. One day, the Roman centurions threw 100,000 bodies off the southern wall of Jerusalem just to get the stench out of the city. And the UN is set up on the exact same hill. I don't think it's coincidental myself, but think what you want anyway. So on the other hand, so these guys do this kind of stuff, but you let a single Israeli soldier fire a rifle in the direction of Gaza or Lebanon, and what do you got? They're going to make a resolution, buddy, and they're going to intervene. Because why? Because it is decidedly biased. Virtually every nation considers the tiny country of Israel an obstacle to peace. And I hope you're not believing that. Uh, it's just simply not true. It's amazingly how incredibly, insanely biased our culture, our world is against these people. Again, it, should, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't add up. Like I said, it should be, I mean, the bad people should be, in, at least in, logically, the bad people should be hated, and the good people when they do good should be loved, and it should be sort of a sporadic, like I said, individualistic thing when people hate, and, 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 and it's not. As long as it is, if you're not a Jew, but if you're a Jew, it's not. It's just not. And if the Israelis are supposed to do all that the UN wants them to do, which is basically give up all their land, then what is the Arabs going to get for it? Have you been to Israel? So if I gain Israel, what have I got? So here's I could suggest some much better places. For instance, if you're going to give Arabs land, or they're going to give the Palestinians land, go to Saudis. They got tons of oil. The Iraqis got rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, beautiful places. Lebanon, beautiful mountains, oh my goodness. Egypt, the antiquity and the majesty, majesty of the Nile. I mean, if I'm a Palestinian, that's what I want. But the UN's going to have a resolution and I want Palestine, quote unquote. What do you get? They don't have any water. They don't have any oil. 
They only have one airport. They got a lot of rocks. They got a lot of that. You don't have anything else. Again, it doesn't make sense unless the Bible is true and there is a God and he has chosen that land and those people. Only then does the insanity start to make any kind of solid sense. So that was the introduction to the sermon. <laughs> chapter, what has this got to do with Zechariah chapter 2, right? I totally agree. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, after glory, so the Lord is saying this, but he's saying that he was sent by God. How is that possible for God to send God unless there's a God the Father and God the Son? You see it's written in there. After glory, he, that is, the Lord says that the Lord has sent him, that's interesting, has sent me against the nations which plunder you, speaking to the Jews and to Jerusalem. For he who touches you touches the pupil, the apple of his eye. God's got an eyeball? Apparently. You ever, one, of the, one of the most guarded parts of our body is our eyes. You've got eyebrows, you've got eyelashes, you've got eyelids, right? You've got a whole arm you're riddling with. Lose an arm, right, when something's coming at you. Lose a hand. Lose the back of your head. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to turn when something's coming because my eyes, you see, we're just, it's a natural reflex. I don't have to think through that process. It's a, it's a reflexive thing. God is referring to that same kind of thing, saying this is a reflexive defense for me. It's so near and dear to me. He calls Jerusalem, as we saw last time, a particular Jewish word, Hebrew word that he says, Jerusalem is the center of the world, literally the belly button of the world. And he says the people are literally his pupil. Wow. That's a statement. Anti-Semitism is, of course, bad. Stay away from it. I was talking to Pastor Greg. So how do I make this applicable? Stop being anti-Semitic. There you go. Fixed all of you. I'm hoping that's not you. I hope you're not involved in hate of any kind. God's called us to love. But also to be aware. Look what's happening, guys. Be aware. Be aware of the fact that, of course, yes, the Bible is true. God is real. These people are chosen. The city is chosen. But it also is real in all other aspects. It's not just these statistics that point how the Bible is real. It points us to the fact of the other things that God is speaking to you about. What is he saying to you? Yeah, you better take it seriously. Because God certainly does. Says what he means. Means what he says, right? I'm going to ask you please to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we think about what God has said this morning to us. The Bible is real. God is true. There is a real enemy out there. It really is life or death. It really does matter what you do. It really does matter your decisions. It really isn't something that you can put off. It really is important that he's first in your life. It's really important for those of you who are not really sure where you stand on this whole enemy of God thing. It's important that you be reconciled to God. God has sent us his son, Jesus Christ, and we're going to be observing these elements in a minute to remind us of the body that he laid down for us and the, the blood that he shed for us. It's important, it's eternally important that you deal with the sacrifice that God has made for you. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you reconciliation. He offers you passing over from the enemy side to the side of God. But it doesn't come through anything that you do. It comes through what he did. It's an offer you accept it or reject it. It's an offer to receive his son, his Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Lord. 
He will defend his own. Is he your Savior? Will you let him save you? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have sent Jesus to be our Savior, that he's not just the, the watch care over the Jews, certainly is over the city of Jerusalem. He's the watch care and lover of all those who by the grace of God would come. To, to as many as received him, just like you say, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believed in his name, saving to the uttermost those who come to God through them. Thank you, Jesus, for being the Savior. We trust you today. We trust you with the plight and the direction of Israel. Help us, God, to be aware of what's going on, to be not a part of hatred anywhere, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Thank you, God, for this reminder that we've had. We lift this all up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.